Hello, 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 and welcome back to With Love and Butter, a chef's podcast on dating and relationships and all the food and drinks that get us through it. I'm your host, Courtney Futch, chef, baker, mixologist, former corporate marketing baddie, yet again, corporate marketing baddie. I do have more information about that over on my channel. Go feel free to check that out. But most importantly, and most relevant for this podcast is that I'm a former serial monogamous. Mm-hmm. turned roster dater. Um, and so I am here to share all of my experiences with you. I am a professional over sharer. And today we're going to be talking about grief, um, romantic, platonic, and grief of the self. So do y'all remember when I said last episode that we were going to be making our way back to lighthearted topics? I lied. Mm-hmm. Sure did. Uh, we are officially in the, I think, knit and the grit, right? Because when I tell you the way that this subject sat clean up on my chest and refused to get off until I typed the full, full thing out, we're going to be talking about things that I wasn't even sure I really wanted to address in the space of this podcast. But um, the longer that I have been doing this, I think the more urgent it feels for me to share this. And so now is the time to also say this trigger warning. Um, today we're going to be talking about severe mental health concerns and ultimately self-harm, um, not mine, but that of the men that I have dated and ahead of the holidays, especially, I realized that this subject might be a deep trigger. So feel free to skip this episode. If you need to, you won't miss anything foundational that I won't reiterate down the line. I promise I'm doing my best to approach this topic as gently and humanely as possible and without the triggering details, even for my own sake. But baby, if you need to skip it, keep your heart three stacks. Okay. And I'll catch you on the next episode. All right, my love. So today's episode absolutely calls for a little bevy, a little treat. I feel like we're, we're about to be waiting in the waters of some pretty deep stuff. Um, and I wanted something that sort of spoke to how exposed I feel coming and talking to you all about this. Not that anybody even prompted me on it. Like I said, it's just really been on my heart, but let's go ahead and get into our what's shaken segment. So for today's what's shaken segment, we have my riff on a kind of famous-ish cocktail in the craft cocktail space, um, which is called the Naked and Famous. And it's equal parts mezcal, Aperol, lime juice, and green chartreuse. All of my favorite ingredients in one place, intermingling and whatnot. But you know, it wouldn't be me if I didn't add a little something extra, a little spice. So we've added in um, a float of mango sorbet and a float of champagne. Okay. So just a little scoop, a little scoop, is a little scoop, scoop. Okay, a little scoop of sorbet, <laughs> a little scoop of sorbet and a float of champagne, right? I, I love this. I think it adds a very like fun um, sort of tropical note to the mezcal. And of course, the Aperol is bitter and green chartreuse is sort of vegetal and herbaceous. Um, and of course, lime juice is just sort of bright and punchy. So um, cheers to the both of us. Happy holidays. All right. Okay. I want y'all to know that sometimes I'm recording these episodes early in the morning. Sometimes it is like not even the afternoon right now. And I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm gonna feel great later. Okay. So, uh, let's go ahead and get into a little bit of mise en place. So I have been thinking a lot about grief lately because it is the end of the year. The holidays are approaching and it is my first year without my grandmother on my dad's side and we lost her in March and I have to think about how to replicate Dorothy's sweet potato pie recipe for the very first time. And I hope I make her proud this year. 
but also because the holidays are the source of much turmoil in my previous relationships and also because today I leave for Afrotech in Austin, Texas, and I'll be gone for a week. And for whatever reason, some kind of way I got into my head that uh, I was going to run into my ex, Wade, who works in cybersecurity at Afrotech. And like the little control freak that I am, I really wanted to like text him and be like, are, are you coming or are you not coming? Mostly so that I can breathe, right? Like I, it would, it would bring deep peace to my soul to know that I wasn't going to accidentally bump into this man. Um, it would just be nice. You know what I'm saying? We have a cordial enough relationship, but we do not speak. And I just, man, when I tell you, I was like, if this, this is going to be so weird, right? Because we, we have not been in each other's space in nearly two years, but I don't even remember his number. So it wouldn't have been helpful for me anyway to try to reach out or unearth his number somewhere in, in, in the annals of my, uh, you know, text catalog. However, um, my mom said something to me as I was just sort of like, oh my God, like what if this happens? And she was like, girl, he might be alive, but isn't he dead to you? So why does it matter if the ghost of him shows up at Afrotech or not? And that was really deep. And so it got me to really, really thinking about um, grief <laughs> and where it goes when the person is still alive. And then what happens also when they are not. So let's revisit briefly my time in the five-year relationship with a man who you have all come to know as Newton. I originally, like I said before, had no intention of unpacking the full breadth of that relationship here because even years later, it never felt safe enough to share. It made me nervous to revisit publicly, but I am so ready, <laughs> I am so ready to release the shame around this relationship and the way that it ended. But as a reminder, y'all know this, the goal of this podcast isn't to bash my previous partners or anything. It's to lay the groundwork for my own healing in a way that I best know how, which is out loud and on camera so that I can remember. My love language back to myself is the act of archival. And... <laughs> please know that I am choosing my words actually quite carefully about the situation because I still love people who have loved this man and love him still. It is them significantly more than him who I'm keeping in mind here. Okay. So I dated Newton from my sophomore year of college in 2013 until the early fall of 2018 with a one year break in between from 2015 to 2016. These dates are important. I promise. And this was a man who I thought I would marry and have children with, do the black power couple thing with, or at the bare minimum, be friends with him until we were old and gray. As you know from previous podcast episodes, I am frequently <laughs> wrong. And in year three and a half, uh, after we had gotten back together after this break, um, signs of worsening mental health started to really show themselves. We started having challenges that did not previously exist in our relationship. And, and slowly, I was starting to see this person who I adored change in front of me. And once I was able to sort of grasp on like tangible examples of that, I began bringing what I was seeing at home in our private space to the attention of his family, the people who I knew would be able to provide him with the resources, um, to be able to manage what I felt like was a very clear shift, a clear delineation, a very clear detour, um, from his mental wellness path. And I frequently struggled to communicate our challenges to other people without them sounding like a lover's quarrel that had just gotten out of hand. But I knew that there was something a lot more grave about it. And it was so much more than just a lover's quarrel. It was so much more than that. This man that I loved was becoming someone entirely new altogether. And he blamed me pretty frequently for the ways that he had changed. 
This came to the most ugly of heads in January of 2018 at an event that I came to call later Hell Day. Our biggest argument, if I can call it that, happened on his 27th birthday at a party that I was throwing for him at his family's house. And as a reminder, I was 23 at the time and was in so many ways doe-eyed and optimistic that things would change, that things would shift, that he would change, that he'd get out. This party would change my entire worldview about relationships, actually, friendships too, and what it meant to find a forever family. I mean, this day changed everything. And so the mental health piece here is actually very interesting because um, when when things started to take a turn, naturally, as his romantic partner, I was the closest person to it. His best friend, who I also love but don't speak to anymore because it's simply not helpful for me to do so, noticed this at around the same time as well. Slowly, in his own interactions with Newton, he began to notice the changes as well. Neither of us were quite able to pinpoint it with appropriate language, but he came to me on the day that we were setting up for my ex's party and shared his concern with me as gently as possible. When I tell you the relief I felt, that I wasn't going through it alone, that it wasn't just me who noticed. And it confirmed my feelings about it because I sensed that something was up. I sensed that there were these huge swings, but I didn't have the language. I didn't have the experience to recognize what was clearly an emerging pattern. And what's more is that I had a very hard time verbalizing it because there was not a safe space to process it. He belonged to a family, which understandably so, was very concerned about um, their professional connections and the way that they were going to be received. And so because I shared a lot of social spaces with them, there really wasn't a place for me to take that and flesh the idea out. Like if I had told anybody what was going on in that relationship, I think even the people who belonged on my side of things, if I had shared with them what was happening, the response would have been as simple as, girl, why are you still here? What are you still doing? And that's a valid point, but it wasn't a solution. And I was like, I don't think y'all understand how unsafe it actually feels for me to not be with him. I already had a great deal of guilt, right, about the fact that my feelings were starting to change under the tutelage of, of, of this relationship and of these concerns, but I didn't have the tools, I didn't have the language, I didn't have the words, um, I didn't know where to go to get the help. And so it wasn't that I was concerned so much about me, which is part of my problem. It wasn't so much that I was concerned about me. I was actually concerned about the harm that he might do to himself or others if all of these brewing challenges continued to go unchecked. That was my fear. And with the early stages of the things that I had seen in him, I understood that we were heading toward rage quickly. And then, as it often does, the challenges that we had in our private life were amplified in social spaces, largely by drinking and smoking. Uh, which is not a moral judgment, actually. Y'all know I, I love a bevy, okay? Um, this is not a moral judgment, but it is like rather a fact of the case. Um, and it wasn't just like a sort of like fun, a little bit ditzy, forgetfulness sort of high when he would smoke. It would it would exacerbate not just his social anxiety, but he'd also become very belligerent, which is not an effect of THC and the experience that I've had with it, okay? And what I had come to realize even later down the line was that even when he was smoking solo, even when he was so smoking in non-social spaces, this belligerence sort of lingered. There were times that we would have these nonsensical arguments where I would come in the house. We didn't live together, but I would come into his space. I had a key and he'd be like, you don't love me. And I'd be like, baby, what are you talking about? What is going on? Where is this coming from? And he'd be like, you don't believe in me. You don't believe in my career. Da -da -da -da. 
right? Um, and I'm sitting there and I'm kind of like, are you provoking me on purpose so that I'll tell you that like, I don't believe in you because that's not true, right? Like I'm not always thrilled with the, with the career decisions that you're making. You know what I'm saying? But it was never about belief. I've been here this whole time supporting you with bells and whistles, damn near with a go poppy sign, right? In my hands. Um, but nonetheless, things escalated even more quickly from there. The moment that the paranoia turned toward me, I knew that I needed to start crafting my exit. Interestingly enough, the morning of his birthday weekend, the, the day of hell day, I wake up to him. We're at my apartment. I wake up to him and he is standing over me <laughs> while I'm asleep. And he's like, you swear you love me? And I'd be like, yeah, nigga, go back to bed. I can't believe you woke me up to ask me this. I was so annoyed. Also, I'm notoriously not a morning person. You know what I'm saying? So generally, anytime somebody wakes me up, I find it to be quite worrisome. But you know what I'm saying? Like these things, they they, they felt so out of place at the time, but a, a pattern hadn't emerged yet. And so when you look at it, actually a pattern really was emerging. And this is why I think it's very important that sometimes you just take a step back from a thing for a little minute and recognize that there is something forming here. There is a thread and the thread is deepening and the thread was cutting into me. It was so sharp. So I didn't realize what was going on. And what was happening was something like suspicion, a very deep paranoia. And then later, he'd have auditory hallucinations, which is that he'd hear things, conversations that had never occurred. Okay, so slowly, but surely, these things started to become more ludicrous and they'd be exacerbated again by drinking or smoking, which he decided pretty much to do at all times and never said no to either, even when I asked really nicely. And so at a certain point, I chilled out on my own drinking and stopped the once a month smoking that I did with him, thinking that if we did it together, then we'd be cool, right? Uh, no. Eventually, he graduated to saying more outlandish things to me or about our relationship and I would leave. We didn't live together. That never ended up happening, but I'd be at his place or he'd be at mine and frequently enough that if I left, it felt major. It felt like a big deal. And then he would call me the next day and be like, hey, baby, what's up? I thought you were going to be here today. And I'm like, sir, do you not remember what you said? What are you talking about? Do you know what the hell you said to me? I started legitimately feeling like I was losing it because we would have a conversation, a full-blown conversation. And there was this point where I felt like even just to cover my own bases, even to make sure that I myself was not losing my mind, I had to start recording what he would say to me, which is not the way that anybody wants to be in a relationship. But I had to do this so that I could have my own back and then I would bring him the receipts of the things that he had said to me in conversation because I have it recorded and he'd be like, you manipulated my voice. And I was quite literally falling apart at the seams because he would look me in my face and be legitimately confused about the context of any of this shit in conversation. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? I would never say something like that to you. And I'm like, but you did say it. You said it on this day at this time. And so because audio was not enough, I had to start recording on video. And the goal wasn't to set him up to provoke him or anything like that. It was literally that I could always anticipate an argument coming into his space. 
And so it just seemed safer to feel armed. I felt like I was collecting evidence in my own eventual harm, if that makes sense. And this wasn't the best way to manage the sort of thing I imagined, but this is somebody who was so decidedly in denial and then refused to pursue any sort of diagnosis for what was very, very clearly trending toward a mental health challenge. Okay. Um, and so eventually I started identifying, okay, all right, something's going on and somebody's going to have to go get some help and damn it is going to have to be you. I ended up going to therapy as a result. We'll talk about this in just a moment. We might not end up getting back to it actually, because I didn't have this written here. But now that I'm thinking about it, my first time in therapy was after his refusal to go. And it became an us problem when it was originally something that I just wanted him to own. And while I was searching for support and resources for him, I ended up finding a therapist who asked me for the first time, how are you managing this? And I was in the phone booth at my job at HelloFresh at the time over on 25th and 6th in New York. And I'm in this little cubby hole and I'm calling around. And when she asked me this, I burst into tears at work on the clock. Nobody had thought to ask me how I was doing in the middle of everything that was going on. It stood out to me that she did. So she became my therapist for the better part of the next six months or so until I simply couldn't afford it anymore at the time. And then eventually I did move over to another therapist, a therapist who I've maintained a relationship with for the last a little over two years. And what's sad about the whole thing with my ex is that we were ring shopping at the three and a half year mark. We were ring shopping. And when we were in a good space, it was sunshine and rainbows and baby, I love you's and I'm going to give you the worlds and big teddy bears for Valentine's day. And then when it was bad, it was the lowest self-loathing sort of low. And after the incident in January, which I will not talk about, um, is a moment twice that size in February with everyone present. And I'll spare the details, but I, I just, I need you to know it got bad. And as I'm driving back home by myself that night, I finally call my dad and I tell him, and I'm like, dad, listen, I need you to promise me that you're not going to make a big deal out of this. I need you to not flip out. I need you to not threaten to do whatever, whatever, but this is what's going on in my relationship. And I don't know what to do. And he says, okay, what sort of support do you think you need? And I didn't have an answer yet, but I didn't want somebody to come and save me by scooping me up and taking me back to Atlanta or Charlotte or Miami or wherever. And my mom had been pretty adamant the entire time about me leaving Jersey anyway. She never liked the state of New Jersey. Um, but from the moment that I moved, she was like, I don't know. I just don't really see you there. That's how she sounds in my head. Um, and she knew, I think, without communicating it, the choice that I was making to be alone with him up there so young. I understand now that she was really just scared for me, but I don't call her. I call my dad, not my mom, because I don't want to run away from it. And I knew that she would escalate everything, which was the right response. It is the right urge. But I needed to be in it. I didn't need to be in that particularly, but I did need to be in it. I felt like, um, I felt like I had made bad choices for myself somewhere down the line. And I don't know what exactly it was that I had did, but I had to figure out how to get me out of it. And so that was the work that I went about doing. And it was the messiest work. Six months later, I was out of the relationship. The breakup happened in public. One of the things that we did when we uh, had arguments 
was when we knew that there was something big that we really needed to talk about, we would go out, we'd pick a place, we'd get dressed up and we would go and have this conversation at a restaurant, like in public, in a public space. And it kept uh, either of us from like raising our voices or like getting overly, you know, getting overly expressive. It like focused on kind of the task at hand, if for nothing else in the performance of public decorum. But it was really actually like a very helpful method for us. And so when I invited him out to dinner, I think maybe he knew what was coming. And so he did not make a scene. He asked me question after question after question about if I had found somebody else, the answer was no. He asked me if I had loved somebody else, the answer was no. He asked me why I was leaving him when he was in his worst spot ever. I said, I'm leaving you for me. And at the end of that night, it felt safe enough to go home and not ever have to worry about it again. I knew that I was walking away. I knew that I'd probably never engage with him in the same way again. But I was logging out, that I was signing off and saying, I fully, truly do wish you all of the best, but it is only while I have any of my best left to give. Any longer and I for sure would have hated him upon my exit. But instead, I think I grieved because on the back end of our breakup, he eventually did receive the diagnosis for his mental health concerns. It is irrelevant what exactly that was. And for his own privacy, I will not share. I imagine many of you um, are, you know, former colleagues of mine from college, and I don't want to air him out in that way. But I was later informed about this diagnosis from a member of his family. And I learned about it around Christmas of 2018. And then I did not speak to this man again for another two years. And in the meantime, while I grieved this person who was still walking around the earth, zombified maybe and who definitely hated me and felt betrayed by my exit there was the stickiness of the social circle that we shared with one another one which mostly he brought me into he was much more socially established than I was but I had a different social currency than him which was my warmth and my hospitality and so his friends quickly became mine too and it was very rare if ever that we unraveled there were a few notable friendships made during that time that stand out to me um, with a couple, particularly who I'll rename Barnes and Noble, which I think is funny. They'll know who they are. Um, so the first time that I met Barnes was actually because him and my ex were best friends in college and then best friends in quotation marks um, as time went on in the aftermath of college as well. But the but the relationship had begun to change, of course, because my ex was becoming more withdrawn, more self-interested and uh, spiraling a bit more as well. But then Barnes met Noble and I fell in love with her too. And they have these three gorgeous kids who I don't get to make it up to see nearly as often as I would like, but they are family still through and through all five of them. And I don't play about family. And I think that even in the introduction to me through this man, through this relationship, I think that they knew what like my core value was, how they, how I, how I saw a family and what it really meant to me to belong to that. I think they saw that in me really even early. And I was at a place where I really recognized the value in keeping the people close to you who have loved you the whole time. But I was, in a lot of ways, the manager of me and Newton's social relationships, at least where there were women involved. And so many of his friends were partnered and I stayed close to all of the women. It, it was. And I stayed close to all of the women. It is the only thing that at times kept us connected to the community when he began to withdraw in every other sense. But back to Barnes and Noble, I think we really related in very similar ways, not just because we have the same kind of fun dad sense of humor. 
<laughs> um, and can easily turn, you know, one mild joke into a string of running jokes. And it is one of my favorite things. I've always loved this about Barnes. And then his wife, Noble, just kind of like jumped right into it. Right. Um, but another way that we ended up relating that I did not realize was happening at the time um, was that because Newton's friendship with Barnes looked a lot like my relationship with him, Barnes and I were actually experiencing the same sort of shift in, in him. And so Noble, the wife, understands, I think better than a lot of people, what I was dealing with at that time, because she also watched her husband, his former best friend, struggle in the same ways that I did romantically with him, platonically in his own friendship with him. I don't want to say that we're bound by that particular trauma. There's so much more love there than there ever was pain. But I do think that there's a very foundational understanding to all of that. And I think that it really is key. And it's been a beautiful foundation to our relationship. But I'm so grateful that it's been able to take new meaning. And it's even more beautiful now, I think, because before that, I was fully prepared for everyone who I knew through him to walk away from me in the aftermath of the breakup because he had the loyalty card to play. Loyalty is something that uh, was always incredibly important to him as a principal. And so I imagined that when the time came for him to cash in his chips, he would do it with the friends and maybe he would do it to hurt me. And I was prepared to lose access to these friends, even though I knew that I'd put in the groundwork simply because I'd met them through him. And so I said, if that's what happens, then I'll survive. But I will be so sad because I've already done the work of building solid relationships with these good, good people. And there are several cases like this. There are so many friends that I have who knew me during the space of my time with Newton, um, who I'm not even sure if they still communicate with him. It's of no import to me. But as for my relationship with them, it's gotten even more solid over the years. And I think because they saw me go through what I did with him, even when they did not have full context, and then were later able to get that context to understand what had taken place. I think it deepened our relationships in a lot of ways, but then there were some relationships I knew I would need to change in order to protect myself from having to see him. And it was a constant triggering, for example, his stepsister, who is the human embodiment of a warm sugar cookie, or maybe a snickerdoodle, something coated in cinnamon sugar or something like that. She is a ray of sunshine with a really raunchy dad's sense of humor with hair that sits atop her head like a halo. And she is rooting for everybody black all the time. And she is the sort of gorgeous that you see on your morning commute once. And so you take the same train every day after for weeks looking for her. And you know that she must know how beautiful she is, but she never makes it broadcast. I loved her from the moment that I met her. She made me feel safe somehow. Sugar cookie safe. But I struggled to let her get to know me in the shadow of her brother. All that big, big space he took up made me feel so uncertain around his family. So mostly, I admired her from the sort of distance that teenage girls watch grown women with and wish they were that cool. When my relationship with Newton ended in the fall of 2018, I didn't know how to navigate his stepsister. I felt a great deal of shame about the things that she had seen between me and her brother, about my responses to his behavior, to my sadness, my never knowing which house rules to follow when I was around. I wanted so badly to belong to their blended Cosby family. And now I was out of that forever. But they still belong to each other in a way that I know I never could again. And so I couldn't bear the thought of seeing his smiling face on her Instagram stories on Thanksgiving or seeing who he'd eventually date happen to pop up in a photo dump. I unfollowed her because I couldn't bear it. And sometime later, she unfollowed me back. And then for two years... We didn't speak. 
I don't care to share the details of the awkward event that brought us back into each other's orbit, but when we reconnected in the aftermath of that event, there was air to clear, and I'm grateful because she granted me the space to do so. We talked at length over a FaceTime call with Wine about the undoing of my relationship with Newton, the new context that she'd had, which helped her see me more clearly, and we'd address the Instagram elephant in the room. I explained to her what I just shared with you all, which is that I couldn't watch him do life through her lens and how I wished I'd had the language at the time to just tell her that, but it didn't seem like I had a right to either. She understood and for a while we kept a friendly distance with one another until a mutual friend of ours who you've heard me mention before, Delia, um, who is in my close friends and um, is just an incredible, incredible woman. Um, when Delia re-entered m- the fold of, of friendship for me in the funniest way, which is through the close friends. Um, when she kind of made her way back, knowing that she still had this relationship, this friendship with my uh, ex's stepsister, eventually my ex's stepsister made her way into the fold of the close friends as well. And there was an intimacy in it. Um, and also it felt like a sense of, of closure maybe. Um, and our relationship has deepened really beautifully since. And it's interesting then that, that, that particular thing gave me closure on my time with Newton. It was the confirmation actually that what I had experienced with him, she did too. I wasn't grieving in a vacuum. Someone else knew what the hell I was talking about. And not that I would have wished this on literally anybody else in the world. But it was a little nice to know that I wasn't losing him alone. Now, Newton, last I heard, um, is in a much better space. And that's great. But we both have each other blocked. We will likely never communicate again. I don't anticipate ever running into him again. I really hope I don't. I let the person that I knew in him go because that person just doesn't exist anymore. And I'll never get to tell him about the hurt it caused to be collateral damage in his mental health journey. I grieve not being able to confront the pain with the person who caused it, intentional or not. And I also get to grieve 23-year-old Courtney, who had stars in her eyes and not enough words and was barely making ends meet in a Jersey City loft, meant for two, for him and for me. She is gone because she had to go after what she went through. And then on the flip side of that, I birthed someone wholly different, funnier and industrious and Eventually, I filled that space with so much other love from hundreds of people over the course of the next four years for dinners and parties and game nights and brunches and a lover here or there. I'm glad she's gone. (laughs) So now let's get into the main courts. Ultimately, I think that there are a couple of different varieties of grief that we go through when our relationship is over. There's the grief of the ending of a relationship. There's the grief of the potential of that relationship. There's the grief of who we were, who you were in that relationship because you have built a life. Two years, honestly, six months is enough time to get into a really good groove with somebody and imagine a lifetime with them. And then sometimes it's even less time spent than that. There is also the grief of the social aspect of the relationship. All of those friendship dynamics, they change the way that you're able to communicate about what you have going on in your life. Those things, they, they change. And not all of those things are an out and out loss, but they are changes and it's important to call them that because some changes still require a season of grief, don't they? And whether it's an angry one or whatever, sometimes the acknowledgement of that grief is simply the difference. Now, y'all... 
I haven't shared this in full before publicly. Actually, I've never shared this publicly except for like that one time in my Instagram live. I dated somebody in 2015 um, who later went on to take his own life in the fall of 2017. And I did not even find out that he was gone until the fall of the following year, which was 2018. Remember when I was telling you about the timeline that was important earlier? This is part of it. So y'all heard me say at the beginning of this episode that I was dating in Newton in 2013. That's when we started dating. We took a gap year in 2015. I think breaks are stupid, by the way, and we'll we'll talk about that maybe in some other episode. Um, but we're taking this gap year. I think it's dumb and I am reluctant uh, to participate, but presumably my ex wanted to thought and or bop. And so I said, no problem. I was livid about it, but I said, no problem, whatever. It's fine. I'm a gorgeous woman. I fell quite easily into a robust dating life. And it was a summer before I went back to Syracuse anyway for grad school. And I was in Atlanta. And so I figured, you know, Let's play. Um, and while I was perusing the streets of the internet, which was Tinder at the time, I met this guy. We'll call him Corey. We're not going to call him Corey. Um, I I won't share his last name, but his name was Cortez. And I feel like it's important. I just, I, I just, I really want to speak his name. I really do. Um, because in the unlikely chance that somebody who sees this episode sees enough of the, of the correlating details and knows him, it would be so nice to have a point of connection to this person. But Cortez was in law school. Um, he was at Emory in 2015. He had just completed his 1L. And uh, when I met him, he was working at a corporate law internship. He was in-house, I think at maybe Macy's at the time, um, after finishing his first year. And so we meet on Tinder. We exchange a little bit of fun banter. He asked me to go on a date. We pick a place. And that place is Marlowe's Tavern. Marlowe's Tavern ends up becoming one of my favorite places to go on dates during the summer of... Um, during, during the summer of 2015. All right. Um, and so when, you know, we come in, he meets me at the door, we sit down and our waitress immediately comments on how beautiful of a couple we are. We're both in all black. It's early summer wearing soft gold watches glimmering on our wrists. And my dress is like form fitting. Okay. Form fitting. And it keeps riding up my thighs when I walk, but of course I don't think he minds. And I'm a little nervous about him. But she doesn't seem to notice this. And she said that we read like a power couple and it made me flip my hair and, and blush a little bit. And I saw him drink that in, knew that was where he was aligning himself for power. But despite that comment, it was still a reluctant attraction from the both of us. He was such a smart ass and I was much more meek back then, but I was really drawn to him. And so he let his sensitive side show with me a little bit more too. He'd always said how jealous he was of me that I had had my eye on culinary school after my master's program, how that would have been the path that he pursued if life had shaken him a little bit more one way or the other. He tells me this while we're at his apartment that he shared with the very quiet, never home roommate. I wish I'd remembered his name. We are sitting on the couch watching something on TV, eating quite thoroughly seasoned baked salmon that he had made. The white rice he critiques was slightly overcooked as he flicked grains around in his bowl. It is a good meal, I tell him, don't worry too much. And that I actually like my rice with this texture. And I'm not lying to him when I say this because it's the way that my mom makes it actually. And he smiled a little and I was glad that it made him feel a little better, even if it only was about the rice. 
Weeks later, the subject of baking comes up. I don't remember why, but he wants to try his hand at it and ask me to send over any of my favorite recipes, and so I do. And then... And so the next day, he is FaceTiming me from a Macy's while he's perusing the kitchenware aisle, looking for a KitchenAid to bring home so that we can bake together. This is so sweet. We did end up baking together twice before the summer was over. We had the better part of two months together, but I cared about him. He occupied a lot of brain space for me. And at the end of the summer, I was sad because I understood the only honest thing there, which he so clearly communicated, which is that you don't live here. You're going back to Syracuse. So there's that. It was the last time that I saw him. And after I finished grad school a year later in 2016, I moved to New Jersey pretty much immediately after graduation. It turns out that Cortez was there too for an internship at a firm in New York while living in Harrison, New Jersey. We were really not that far apart from one another. And uh, I did not get a chance to run into him while he was there during that internship during the summer of 2016. My ex Newton and I had gotten back together. I really didn't feel like it was a good idea to be entertaining anyone who I'd seen sort of as an ex or someone that I had dated. Nonetheless, I'd kind of always kept up. We were connected on Facebook and on Instagram. And so I'd see whenever he'd post something about being in New York. Um, and I just reached out and told him if he ever needed any recommendations um, or if he ever needed to, you know, meet anyone or whatever. Like if you ever needed anything, essentially like me and my ex were there, I was very transparent about the fact that I was now seeing someone. He was like, yeah, I'm trying to be on my power couple shit like y'all. Right. Um, and it was, it was cool, right? Like it was actually a really nice transition out of our space, but something that we had actually said to one another while we were dating the first go round was that, well, there was never a second go round, but while we were dating, um, in 2015 is that like, listen, if we're both single at 25, we should just get married. We should just, you know what I'm saying? Time's ticking. And I thought that that was so funny. Um, but anyway, um, so, you know, he leaves, he goes back to law school in Atlanta for a final um, year. And then after that, he comes back to the law firm that he did his internship with. He moved to Harrison, New Jersey. And now it's 2017. My ex and I were in an okay space, but this is before the shift begins to occur, which is actually in August of 2017. So it is the summer now of 2017. And I am, um, I saw that he was back, that he had moved. Um, I reach out to extend him a congratulations. Very excited for him. Um, I knew that he had just taken his bar exam um, and that results would likely drop in October um, of that coming year or of that year. And, um, you know, I was just, I was excited, um, you know, that someone that I knew who was mine and kind of mine only in a way that like, I didn't have to share a friendship with him, with my boyfriend at that time. Does that make sense? I know that it probably seems like weird, but I, I was actually really wanting for, um, my own kind of independently sourced contextual relationships with people that had nothing to do with my relationship with Newton because it was so all consuming. Okay. Um, and so, one day I reach or he reaches out to me on Facebook and, um, cause that was where we were best connected. And, uh, we are just kind of like chatting. He was like, yeah, you know, like how are things going? Like, you know, how are, how are you and your boo and da da da. And the cas conversation is going like, so well, it's really casual. Right. Um, and he was like, yeah, you know, like I'm trying to date, I'm trying to get back out there. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and so I was like, oh, I probably know some, some people that you should meet. And he was like, well, you know what, if you're around, we should go grab drinks. I was like, cool. I tell my ex that this is something that I'm going to go do. Like he was like, okay, cool. Have fun. You know, whatever. 
we had that sort of trust in our relationship dynamic. And so I wasn't really worried about it. But all of this is in September of 2017. I promise y'all. I'm inundating you with dates, but all of them are relevant. I pinky swear. Okay. Um, and so it's, you know, September of 2017, we're supposed to get together. We set a date. We're going to go to a bar in Harrison. Okay. Um, obviously I drive, that was not going to be an issue. And in the meantime, in the background of my professional career, baby girl was being highly sought after. Okay. I was working at HelloFresh at the time, um, leading the brand partnerships team, um, and was looking to, wasn't necessarily looking, but opportunities kind of kept coming up. And one of them was with a company that I actually still love by the name of Drizzly, love Drizzly. Um, and so they were looking for a marketing manager, but the role would have been, um, part-time Boston, part-time New York. And that would have changed a lot of things about the way that my life was set up. And I would have had to travel like at least twice a month out to Boston um, and spend the kind of extended periods of time there. But they really, really wanted me in this role. And uh, so we began the interview process. And the final piece of that would have been that I flew out to Boston to meet all of the team members um, at Drizzly. And so they needed me the day after I was supposed to get together with Cortez. And so I had to message him and I was like, Hey, I'm so sorry. Like, I'd really love to get together, but I think this is kind of like my dream gig and they want to fly me out like tomorrow. So I have to go home and prep. I'm not going to be able to get together today. And he was like, okay, cool. No worries. You know, whatever. He was very understanding about it at that time. And, um, I was like, all right, cool. Great. I'll let you know when I'm back. So I'm bad. One, I go, I do end up getting the offer. I decide not to take it largely because uh, I got called the N word on my way back from the Boston airport in an Uber. And that was traumatizing for me. And quite frankly, I haven't found Boston to be an appealing city since. It was just so weird um, that it would happen that way. And it just felt like a sign maybe that that was not a space that I was supposed to be in. So ultimately, I do not take the offer. But in the meantime, while all these things are happening, eventually I do reach back out to Cortez and I and I say something along the lines of like, hey, I'm back. So much has happened, um, but the interview went really well. I did end up getting the offer. I decided not to take it. Can't wait to catch you up about it when, you know, we get together. When are you free? And I don't hear anything back from him. Now, at this point, like we're texting because we've always had each other's number, but something about Facebook was just easier at some point or another. And so it, that's just what we did. Anyway, I text him. The message goes green. Oh, okay, cool. Maybe his phone's off. Whatever. No big deal. Um, you know, he, he a lawyer, he's a lawyer. Um, so there's that. And then I think like two weeks later, cause I hadn't heard anything back and I was like, Oh, that's weird. Like I texted again and, um, I was just like, Hey, you know, like I'm back. Hope you're doing well. I'm sure you've been busy with work, but like, we'll still have to get together. <sighs> okay. So about a week later, um, I am, on the train um, and I'm coming from my ex-boyfriend's house, which means that actually I'm, I'm like crossing over on the path train. And I look over and because the, the path does stop in Harrison, I could have sworn that I saw him. I could have sworn that I saw him. And so I call and the call goes straight to voicemail and I go, okay, we are kind of in a tunnel. So maybe that was him and I hope he has a good day, right? Like it, it was really very simple. I did, it wasn't like so much as of um, any sort of like romantic possession or anything like that, that I felt, I, I think I was just, again, really excited to have something that belonged to like me and me alone. And maybe that was the beginning stages of a more dangerous feeling. I'll, I'll never know. But 
I was genuinely excited to see him or what I thought was him. And so I called, no answer. Okay, whatever, fine. I sent a text. Hey, I think I might've just seen you on the train. Da, 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 da. Um, I never end up hearing from Cortez again. Let me tell you how I found out. So now it's it's 2018, okay? I've, I've pretty much put the thought of uh, Cortez out of my mind because I needed to. I thought it was weird that, you know, I hadn't heard back from him, but I figured also maybe he's gotten into a relationship. Maybe he blocked me. You know, maybe he thinks it's weird to stay in communication. I don't know, but it's really not for me to unpack for him. So I won't make any assumptions about what this was. Um, and I kind of moved on with my life. Well, 2018 has come now and it is, uh, after my breakup with Newton. And things are just feeling like really like weird, but I also feel a sense of just like relief that this relationship that I was in, I was able to make it out of safely. And as I'm sort of, I'm, I'm sort of like in the very early stages of like navigating that and feeling all those feelings and crying quite literally all of the time and then starting to feel little flecks of hope. And in one of those hopeful days, I go to look him up because I hadn't seen anything from him in a little while, right? Um, I go to look him up on Instagram first. We were, con we were connected there. Uh, he doesn't, there's, there's no Instagram, like no, no post from this user. And I was like, damn, did he, did this, did this nigga block me? <laughs> you know, that was my question. And he blocked me. Cause you know, that was going to piss me off. That was going to piss me clean off. Right. So that's what I thought had happened first. Um, and then I look on Facebook and I don't see anything. Like I'm, I, I don't see anything. So I type it into Google. Like I just type in his name. And I was, I don't know why I did that, but you know, like Google Chrome, you know, whatever. And so I wanted to go pull up his LinkedIn to see if he was still at that same company and if maybe he had moved or whatever, maybe he was working abroad. I had no idea. Um, Cortez was a very interesting man with a lot of very interesting aspirations. And so it didn't really ever surprise me, whatever he said he was getting into. I also saw him on an episode of Greenleaf in season one. Uh, Cortez was just out here collecting little side quests. You know what I'm saying? And I really love that for him. So nothing would have surprised me, except I was actually quite surprised by what I found. Because when I typed in his name, obituary popped up right after. And I was like, bitch, what the hell? Those are my precise thoughts. Um, what the hell? And I was like, no, it can't be. There's gotta be some old man named Cortez Adams. It just, it has to be. And so I, um, I click it and it's him. And I felt gut punched. I had never and still haven't to this day doubled over and screamed the way that I screamed when I found that out. Cortez took his own life in September of 2017, just days after we were supposed to get together. And I didn't know who to call. There was, there were no questions that I could ask about what had happened or anything. And so I went to Facebook and we were connected on there still. And I see all of these, um, comments under one of his last photos and nobody posted anything like on his, on his wall, so to speak. Nobody posted anything on his timeline. It was underneath the photo, which is why I never saw it when I went to his Facebook to go check how he was doing. And there are all of these like, my condolences, rest in peace, you know, all of these things. And 
I was just absolutely floored. I was so floored. I didn't know what to do. And I called my mom and I am bawling into the phone. I must, I know she must have thought that I was just completely unokay. And I know she thought that it was related actually to what had happened with my ex and I. Um, and it was completely unrelated to that, right? Um, it was It was the fact that I was a year late. I was a year late and um, it ended up being such a lonely time because of course that was the time that I had already, you know, my ex and I were already no longer together. And because I was just kind of getting back into like a healing space and I was talking things out and I finally had found the language and the mental health of my ex Newton was actually quite heavily on my mind. And then I find out about Cortez And for him to have taken his own life the way that he did, which I won't share, but it was a very violent ripping himself out of the world that he had done. And I got this news the week before Thanksgiving. The week before Thanksgiving. Two days later, um, two days later, I ended up meeting my ex, Wade. And, oh man, um, and, and Wade was also a deeply sad man. And I, it's, it, I really struggle with this because it's actually very difficult to not place blame on yourself, myself, um, when I recognize actually a very clear theme emerging that I was, I was attracting and dealing with very emotionally volatile men, right? Volatile. Like, it's a very specific choice of word, actually, because it's it's different from fragile, right? I think I'm fragile. I'm quite fragile. Like, I'm quite delicate. Um, volatile is something very different altogether. Volatile feels like fragile, but with violence attached. And I, um, and I kept pulling them into my life. You know, and so it wasn't until the end of the two year relationship with Wade that it sort of hit me what I had done, what I'd been doing for the last seven years of my life um, was spending time in these relationships with the men who are actually quite emotionally fraught. What it did do because of the timing was reinforce every fear that I had about my ex Newton. Um, but what was, uh, what I think was like very interesting is actually the, the, the timing of how all of this came together, because it was like my ex and I had ended things in, you know, early fall and then rolling into like Thanksgiving is when he started kind of like reaching back out. It was closer to Christmas though, or no. And then I got this news in like closer to Thanksgiving about what was going on. And so I dealt with Newton with a great degree of kindness because of what I had just learned about what happened to Cortez. So when my ex began reaching out again and was on the like, baby, I miss you train. Why are we not together? What's going on thing? I handled him with kid gloves because I was so worried that, um, that I could, that I could push him there, that I could push him to the same fate. And I know that that guilt is not mine to carry. I know that like, I logically understand, especially now, that nothing, 
I don't I don't think anything would have changed Cortez's outcome if he had decided to do this, right? If his mind was made up about that was what like if if he if taking his own life was something that he wanted to do, maybe it would have happened anyway. But for two years, three years even, really up until this year, so I'll call it four, I sat with this sort of insurmountable grief, this idea that like I could have refriended him into not doing that. One, that is an irresponsible thought. And two, I later found out that there were other things that were haunting him anyway, right? And so I had taken on all of this emotional responsibility for this man the way that I apparently do with so many of the men that I've dated and am actively trying to divorce myself from, so to speak, you know what I'm saying? Um, and while I've been trying to do that work, something that I realized is that I had to let the story go too. So what came up in the aftermath of that? Because every so often I have to remember that I'm still sort of grieving him in this weird sort of silo, which is that we don't have any people in common. I don't know any of his friends. And I've only met his one roommate that one time when he was in law school. And I was getting ready to go back to grad school. And then that was pretty much it. So that was the only person that I know who knew him. And it's so weird because nobody would have ever known that we were dating. I, there there wouldn't have been the sort of space for us to have built a social circle with one another. We, we met on a dating app. But there was a lot of like care there. And he was always very gentle with me. And I always appreciated that. And I had a lot of respect for him. And I liked him a lot. And, you know, I was going back to school. So I knew that nothing was going to end up working out. But naturally, when we moved on with our lives, I always felt like I was just rooting for him in whatever way that meant. And so when I looked up and I was 25, and I was single again, I thought, let me call this man. And by the time I did, he was already gone. He was already gone and had been gone. And so I had to grieve that alone because I missed the grief boat. Or at least that's what it felt like. And it's not like anybody would have thought to reach out to me. Nobody even knew that I existed in his world. Nobody. So I didn't expect that. But I think what did end up coming up for me um, is the it's the first time that I came up with the language of intimately lonely. Grieving in a vacuum is so fucking lonely to not have anybody in common. Our lives were not intertwined and this wasn't a problem necessarily until he was gone. And then I spent weeks digging through his Facebook so that I can find his mom and send her a message because I had all these pictures of her son. And I thought that maybe she'd want them because he looked so cute while he was holding that one cake that we made together that time, which was actually for my own birthday that year. You know what I'm saying? He was a good man. He was a good guy. And I thought that maybe she'd want to remember him having fun like that, even if it wasn't with her. I don't know. Um, smiling all big and shit. He had a really beautiful smile. And so um, I was just kind of in the void talking about it solo to myself. And the close friends didn't exist at that time. So I was just sort of venting and telling people like, yo, tell people that you love them while they're here. Like that was really it because I'd always felt that way about him. I'd always felt a deep level of care about him but I never said anything. I always operated from the understanding that it couldn't be fruitful because we're both going back to our regular, regular lives anyway. And maybe ultimately I was afraid of rejection, I think, but 
you know, I'd gotten into another relationship. I was back with Newton and it was just, I, I don't know, it wasn't really a thing, but I think about shit like that sometimes. And I've wondered about an infinite number of possibilities, but the only one that I live in is that he is not here. So I thank Cortez for the memory and I hope he is at peace and I hope that his family is at peace. Oh. <sighs> All right, y'all. Okay. Um, I made it through it. So let's get into the spread. So today's meal pairing is actually an ode to the meal that I had on my first date with Cortez, uh, which was Cajun shrimp and grits. Um, so my spin on it is a smoky barbecue and orange shrimp um, with andouille sausage over buttermilk Gouda grits. Now, when we were on our date and I ordered shrimp and grits, he actually joked that like, you must not be expecting a kiss at the end of this because, you know, shrimp. And I was like, for starters, boy, I keep that thing on me. I stay strapped, blistering strips and five gum. And so you better plan to cough them kisses up. And, and he did. And he did. As he should. Um, but my response to him in that way was actually the first time I'd ever seen him laugh from his gut. And that moment does stick out to me because it didn't happen a whole lot in, the, in our time spent together thereafter. And naturally, because all is paired in love and forks, your wine pairing for the shrimp and grit varietal is a Pinot Gris, okay? A little bit of Pinot Gris. A lot of people know Pinot Noir, but Pinot Gris is like its, it's white equivalent, counterpart, complementary system. Um, and it just pairs really well with the salt and the smoke from the andouille sausage. Um, and it keeps things light with little notes of citrus, which pair really beautifully with the uh, little pops of orange zest that are in the barbecue sauce. Um, and it's also got uh, notes of stone fruit as well. And it's got this sort of like velvety mouthfeel. It's, it's, it's really very beautiful. I, I love a good Pinot Gris. Um, and our song pairing, the soundtrack for, for today's episode um, is A&O or A Night Off by El Hay, produced by Jay Lewis and Drew's that dude. Now, I love El Hay, loved El Hay for a very long time. Is it L.A., El Hay? I don't know, but I always pronounce the H so that y'all know who I'm talking about. Um, and I think it's it's L.A. But L.A.'s name is actually an acronym for Every Life Has an Ending, um, which not even being cheeky, it just felt really appropriate here. Um, and I was actually super heavy into SoundCloud at the time of like 2015. And this was a summer that I actually discovered LA as an artist. And I unearthed this song um, from a playlist of mine called Melancholy Music, which I used to, you know, y'all, one thing about it is Courtney been curating. Okay, she been curating. And um, I had made this playlist that had exactly 365 songs on it that went for exactly 24 hours. The work that was involved with that, it's still up on SoundCloud, but some of the songs don't exist there anymore. So I have to, I might do a, a reprisal. Nonetheless, beautiful playlist. If you want to go look it up over on SoundCloud, you're more than welcome to. Um, but it is for sure the most accurate time capsule that I can revisit about what was going on in my life starting from the year of 2015. Like really... I'm, I'm so glad that like I kept that as a gift to myself because when I went back and listened to that song, it actually brought me back to um, a lot of the rotations of songs. Like there was, there was certainly a rotation um, of songs that I would listen to and that I would share with people. And this was one of them. Um, and, <laughs> and um, very frequently was I listening to this song on my late night drives, either back home um, or over to his place. 
And so I just wanted to share it with you all. Um, LA is an, an incredible artist, has been um, since, you know, his debut and I believe 2014, certainly 2015, but maybe 2014. Um, he is the gift that continues to give and I hope that you all um, enjoy the musical pairing. All right, so now just the tip. <sighs> there are so many ways that grief hits us. And it's just grief in that way is also quite lonely because you're grieving the possibility too of what could have become. Grief is an interesting thing and I think it is. It's um, it's multi-pronged and it really does wrap you up in its octopus-like tentacles and hold you there for a little while or a long while too. I don't know that that's the worst thing in the world because grief too sometimes is the closest thing to a warm hug from the person that you lost, you know, to remember because the alternative is the guilt of forgetting them. I heard it said once that grief is just love with nowhere to go. And I really do deeply believe that. I also believe that every loss is not necessarily an absence. And I think it's important to do that sort of unpacking of like, what does it look like for us to maintain our relationships to the memories of people? What does it look like for us to maintain these social, you know, relationships and dynamics and friendships on the back end of that as well? What does it look like for us to negotiate our relationships with people in the peripheral? Who keeps who in the divorce, so to speak, right? Because grownups are not children, and that seems very obvious to say out loud like that, but it's true. Grownups are not children. You get to choose how you continue to show up with one another. I think that I'm still figuring that out. I'm still trying to get back to, you know, these spaces with the people that I know I care about who have cared about me when I didn't care about me or didn't know yet that I could change my romantic relationships and still have access to platonic and community care. The fact of the matter is these dynamics change all of the time, but the work these days is not to push them away without communication. Shame here is not a productive emotion for repair or for reestablishment. <sighs> And so going into the holidays, the stickiest season of grief, please just remember to give yourself grace while you're feeling all of the things that you're feeling because I know it's not fun, but the feelings will come up anyway, and you will still be here tomorrow and the day after and the day after to walk yourself through the grief because grief is a cycle, but it doesn't have to be all consuming. It doesn't, even if it feels like it's the stickiest thing you've ever stepped into, even if it feels like quicksand or cold molasses, it does not have to suck you down into it. So I hope that you find your community, one who will love you in and out of your romantic spaces, agnostic of the partner, because you deserve to be experienced in full. We all do. We all do. Whew. All right, my baby, so it is a wrap. It's a wrap on episode 10 Ah, episode 11, we are going to be talking about miscommunications and romance and navigating rejection in dating, which, woo, do I have some stories for you? Um, and potentially a special guest. I don't know. We'll see. I'm, I got to navigate logistics with homeboy, but we might, we might have a special guest. So we'll, let's see what happens. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. I don't know how you even made it to episode 10 if you're not subscribed, if it's not giving subscriber, if this is not a subscription, if you are not subscribe. Okay. I don't know how you made it here, but damn it. Okay. We, you know, get it together. Cause season one is almost a wrap. 
we only got three more episodes to go before I take a little creative hiatus because I genuinely do feel like I need to live more life before I, um, before I come back in here and just keep talking about stuff. You know what I'm saying? I think that it's very important for all of us to feel like we have the space as artists to recharge um, because no one can produce endlessly. Um, I know I can't and I'm not holding myself to that expectation. And so things are going to change. We might have a new format in in uh, in season two. I don't know yet. We'll see what happens. But nonetheless, we got three more of these things to go. Okay, you feel me? Yeah. Um, and anyway, my loves, Thank you for being on this journey with me. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for being on this journey with me. Like I said, I was completely not expecting to dive into this subject today. I really wasn't. Or not today. Obviously, I was preparing for today. But I was not expecting to um, kind of peel back these particular layers. But I realized that I was harboring a great deal of shame around them because of the ways that I um, thought I could have undone them. It was not my undoing to do. And so... Um, Part of my healing, part of my ownership with myself and, and part of my relationship to me um, is to talk about them and talk about them here because it is the way that I process quite literally everything else. And I don't understand why this should be any different. Um, these are not people that I have to protect anymore. So my loves, as you go off into the world, as you do all of the Thanksgiving things, remember this, please. Grace is your right. Give it to yourselves first. All right? I love you, babies. Gang, gang, for real. Bye.